This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. After experiencing trauma, I went to therapy and my therapist guided me through a difficult time in my life. They helped me understand what was happening and provided me with tools to cope and find my own strength and resilience. Their experience and compassion were invaluable and enabled me to rebuild my life and move forward. I strongly believe in the power of therapy to help people through difficult times. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who is trained to listen and give you helpful, unbiased advice. First, you go to their site. You can use my link, betterhelp.com resilience. You answer a few questions and BetterHelp will match you to a professional who has years of experience helping people with struggles just like yours. Let BetterHelp connect you to a therapist who can support you, all from the comfort of your own home. Visit betterhelp.com slash resilience or choose podcast, then notes on resilience during sign up and enjoy a special discount on your first month. Hello, and welcome to Notes on Resilience. I'm Manya Chalinski, and today I had the chance to speak with David Barber. He is an emergency manager working at MIT, and he's involved in the International Association of Emergency Management. And we talked about empathy and compassion and mindfulness and resiliency and organizations and how they can support resiliency. And we even talked about something called a brain break. I think you're really going to like this conversation. Let's listen in. So David, before we get into who you are and why you and I are talking today, I'd like to know if you could have any superpower, what would that be? Well, I knew you were going to ask me this question. So I've thought about it for a while. And In typical David Barber fashion, I'm going to give you probably two answers. Growing up as a child in a rural town in Oklahoma, I always wanted to be the Flash. Oh, yes. Uh, You know, that that was always my thing. I wanted to be like super fast and be able to run around and go anywhere as fast as I wanted to go. And um I still hold on to part of that as my superpower today, mm-hmm. but I would add because of my life's journey that I would want to be able to go as fast as I could so I could get to as many people as I could and help them and hug them and help them in their mental journey. That would be my added part of my superpower is oh. to help them. I love that. I love that. You are right there using your superpower for good, not for evil. Correct. I would always want to use any superpower that I had or any even non-superpower for good and not for evil. That is what I want to do with any part of my life. Yes. And let me be clear. None of my guests have wanted to use their superpower for evil. I'm not sure why I said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure with the topic that we're talking about that uh, nobody would want to use their superpower for evil. But uh, it just seems that that mindset is in the world. So we need to do everything that we can to counterbalance that with yeah. things like this. 
Yes, I hear you. I hear you. So thank you for sharing that. And now let's get into who are you and what you do and why is it that you are in a place to be thinking about trauma and resilience and mental health? Well, first of all, I guess my work defines a lot of who I am because it's where I spend a lot of my waking hours. Mm -hmm. I am the Senior Emergency Management Specialist for MIT in our Emergency Management uh, Group. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm one of four people. I've been on the campus in some way, shape, or form for 40 years. Wow. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I like it. If so, I'm going to stay for a while. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we're responsible for a lot of things on our campus. Obviously, emergency management uh, covers a lot of things. Uh, emergency preparedness plans, first aid, CPR, AEDs, the dreaded alert to the entire campus for when those bad things go on. Mm-hmm. You know, every once in a while, we have to help people through a major public health emergency that comes along, mm-hmm. like uh, something called COVID or something like that. Yeah, so I, it's vaguely familiar to me, yes. Yeah, so things like that. Uh, and then additionally, for us at MIT, my boss and I, Uh, specifically on our team, are also responsible for the oversight of MIT EMS. That's the student-run ambulance EMT organization on our campus. Oh, wow. Okay. So we oversee them, and they provide EMS services to not only our campus, but they do mutual aid into Boston and also here on Cambridge. So they're integrated into the 911 system. So we do that. And uh, that's kind of an overview of what I do at MIT. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also have an alter ego um, outside of MIT. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, in my (laughs) spare time, um, my professional organization, the International Association of Emergency Managers, uh, has subgroups within that organization. And I am currently the chair of the Mental Health and Wellness Caucus for that organization. And in that capacity, I get to get connected. I am connected because of that caucus with an amazing array of just fantastic people from all walks of life that share a common thread of wanting to make sure that our profession is thinking about and doing something about the mental health of our profession, individually, collectively as teams, and the communities and groups that we serve. So that's kind of how I fit into the mental health resiliency world. So, you know, that's, it's so interesting, your role, and I think, you know, all emergency managers, your role is to be thinking about the community, how to help the community. But in order to do that, you also have to be addressing your own resiliency levels and your own mental health to make sure that you actually are able to, you know, take care of yourselves and do this really important work that you do. So first of all, thank you for that. You and I met through International Association of Emergency Managers. And I think everybody that I've met through that organization it's just so dedicated to helping people. And that is a key piece of resiliency for the rest of us is that we've got folks like you who are working to help us. It's a great organization. And 
my experience has been that they are all wonderful people. They all care. They all care deeply about the groups, organizations, territories, regions, whatever that they are connected to, that are responsible, that they serve. Mm -hmm. And um, what we found and the reason that we formed the mental health and wellness group is what you touched on in, in your last statements is in order for us to be able to take care of all those groups, we have to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves. And so many times we spend so much time protecting, serving, caring for, looking after the others mm-hmm. that unfortunately we let our glass get empty and then we become ineffective in our efforts to do and care for the people and groups that we care about so much. Right. Ineffective in your work, but also I'm sure it impacts your personal life and your functioning. So there are many reasons it's important to be taking care of your mental health. So before we dig into some of these good questions, I'm just curious, what do you think about the word resilience? Well, I think it's a word that a lot of people use and depending upon the context it means probably so many different things to so many different people. Yes. Yes. So we have a group on campus that's talking about environmental things. And mm-hmm. for them, resiliency means one thing. Yes. For a manufacturing group, resiliency means something entirely different. Yes. And for the context of we're, what we're talking about, resiliency means something entirely different, but they do have a common theme. Mm-hmm. Resiliency, whether you're talking about the environment or about a manufacturing aspect or in the world of mental health, it's about the ability to, in spite of or through whatever comes at you in the course of your journey, mm-hmm. to be able to take those things, learn from those things, and move forward and not be consumed or overcome by them and find a path through them. Yes. I like the find a path through. Um, I know I personally, there are times when I wish I could just go around. (laughs) It would be so nice if we could just go around, but unfortunately, uh, life is a journey and we have to pass through not around. Yes. So that's what we have to do. All right. So I know this topic is mental health and resiliency is something that you think a lot about and care a lot about. So what are you currently working on um, in terms of resiliency and mental health? So there's a lot of different things that uh, we're working on. Um, Something that just got completed uh, that you are ultimately involved in was the passage of the mental health bill in Congress. Yes, the Post-Disaster Mental Health Response Act. Yes. yes. So you were instrumental in helping Congresswoman Presley uh, get that to the floor of Congress. And in spite of all the people naysayers saying that two sides of uh, of Congress couldn't get together with support and Uh, words of encouragement from groups like the International Association of Emergency Managers, common ground was found, and the bill was passed, 
and signed into law at the end of 2022. So that's a huge victory in a world where they say that the left and the right can't get together. It did on something that they both saw as important for human beings. And I'm so grateful for the work that you and Congresswoman Presley did on that and all the others that were involved. So kudos to everybody on that. No, thank you. And I'm so grateful for your support and the supporting the bill as well. It was just so amazing to know, you know, that it was important to you guys too. Well, it's important for everyone because that's a big step forward. So that's a past thing, but you asked me what I'm working on. So um, one of the things that we are working on now within IAEM is something that we uh, introduced at our uh, annual conference in Savannah, and we're flushing that out and growing it as we move forward to our next conference, which will be again in November, but will be in Long Beach, California. We introduced a concept called IAM Stronger Stories, mm-hmm. and it's a concept that we found that there is power and some healing in our members and our people just being able to tell their story of a particularly poignant episode that they've had in their mental health struggle. Everybody has maybe a defining moment or a moment that they really had a struggle or a difficult time or a time that their metal was really tested by an event or a particular situation. And we've had people that have just by telling their story to peers or others, they found it to have a healing effect. Mm -hmm. And they've also found that the more they told that story, that healing effect has been compounded and it's grown. Yes. And I know that you have spoken and told your story and, and I, I will ask you in a minute how that's done for you, but we found that it's been a very positive experience. So we started this thing that you've probably been doing for a long time. We're calling it Stronger Stories and we introduced it at the, at the conference and we did a session and we had people tell their stories and it seemed very successful. We got a lot of positive feedback about it. Mm-hmm. So we've got a virtual conference coming up in April. We're going to do another session there. And our, we also have a form that we're using uh, that people can write in anonymously and tell their story in script form instead of verbal mm-hmm. uh, so in case they don't want to identify themselves because yes. there's still stigma about talking about your own mental health. Mm-hmm. So they can do that in case they're concerned about that. And then also our caucus is hoping to do a podcast, much like this one, mm-hmm. on IEM Stronger Stories and take it out to the 10 geographic IEM regions prior to Long Beach in November so that each region can have a chance to focus on stronger stories in the regions and kind of build that momentum. And then we will do another live in-person Stronger Stories session in Long Beach uh, in November. So that's another project that we're working on. Wow, that is a fabulous project. And speaking as someone who has who tells my story and who has gotten a lot of value out of that, um, uh, 
both just from the fact of repeating it and feeling validated, but also from the fact of knowing that just sharing my story has helped educate people and maybe, and maybe through that might help someone else who's going through something difficult. Um, I think that's so amazing. And I love that you are focusing on the mental health and helping, helping emergency managers understand their own traumas and their own stresses and difficulties. Um, I think that's such a key piece for, as we said earlier, being able to help others is kind of sharing our own stories and taking care of ourselves. It's really important. About five years ago, we had a lot of people in my profession who said, well, what do I need to talk about this? What what do I need a mental health journey or, or, or why do I need to think about my mental health? I'm not out on the front lines. I'm not the police. I'm not the fire. I'm not EMS. I'm not a responder. Mm-hmm. But then they are talking about how involved they were in a response, how involved they were in a situation. And we would say to them, listen to what you're saying. You are you are just disengaged by assisting and coordinating and collaborating with the frontline responders as if you were there. Mm-hmm. You are just disengaged in this situation as the people on the front line. Don't think that you're not part of this scenario. Yeah. Is the dispatcher any less affected by a critical call than a responder? And over the last several years, we've gotten people to peel the layers off of their eyes and their ears and understand that, oh, yeah, I guess I am being affected by this. So we've seen this huge paradigm shift so that people are actually embracing the fact that they are being affected. They do need to talk about it. And they're opening up their hearts and their voices and they're willing to talk. Why do you think there was that cultural shift and people are feeling more of an ability to be open and to understand the impact on their own mental health? I think a lot of it has to do with we've seen a shift in some of our makeup in our profession. We've seen younger people come in Mm -hmm. and we've just also seen more people in the public eye be willing to openly talk Mm -hmm. about themselves as whole people, not just, oh, I broke my leg. Oh, my mind can't handle the pressure of now. Mm-hmm. We've seen it on the sports stage. We've seen it in other public stages. And it ha- it has helped people in every aspect of life understand, oh, well, if they're willing at their level to admit that they need some help, mm-hmm. then Maybe I'm willing to admit that I need some help. And I think that's had a, a, a big impact on, on a lot of people. And then there's been a dramatic shift by education within our field away from that suck it up buttercup. You're, you know, you're a firefighter, you're a policeman, you're an EMT. You've got another call coming in from dispatch. Get out there and do your job. We don't have time for this. That attitude has, it's not completely disappeared, but it has dissipated a lot and that has helped. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Well, I'm glad 
to hear that. I think in, in all realms, the more we can be aware of what's going on with our mental health, the better. Now, emergency management encompasses a lot of different things. But as I'm thinking about it, I think of, you know, the emergency management function at a municipality or in your case, for example, a university. So sort of government or quasi-governmental organizations who are thinking about how can we help people deal with something awful that happens. So from where you sit, what do you think is the role of our system, our government, our institutions in helping people heal from trauma? Well, I think the first thing that we that we need to put out at any level, any type of organization, whether it's government, city, uh, private institution like us, our, our, our corporate, is we need to get out the word to the people inside of any type of organization. First of all, permission. We need from the top to hear that we value you as humans mm-hmm. and you have permission that it's okay to seek whatever help you need. And that includes mental health. And it's not going to be counted against you. In fact, we encourage you because we want you to be whole. People need to hear that from the top. Mm -hmm. Organizations can say that that's part of their culture, Mm -hmm. but if people don't hear that from the top all the Mm -hmm. way down, they're still going to have a resistance to accept and act on that. Yes. So I think if we could get our organizations, governments, whatever, even here at MIT, we have a ton of resources, but a lot of them go unused because even we haven't, from the top, said, it's okay, do this. Mm-hmm. And I think if we got that at, at, at any level from the top down, it would have an enormous impact on the acceptance by the people within that organization, and then we would see a greater use of resources that in a lot of places are there and just not being used. And then if they weren't, that edict from the top would start to put those resources into place and then into play in those organizations. Right. I like that concept of permission. I think in a lot of cases, we do feel constrained If we're talking about a workplace, for example, we do feel constrained that there are certain ways we need to behave, whether that's ourselves or we've seen, you know, we've seen how they respond when people behave. How do you think we get to a place where that permission, that understanding comes from the top? How do we get there? Well, um, we need advocates. You're an advocate. I'm an advocate. We need to work with our partners and make our voices known, first of all, and make our presence known and just go up. Actually, one of the other things I'm working on right now is working with some of the other mental health and wellness resources here at MIT Mm -hmm. to put together a proposal to do exactly what I said, to take to our new president who just started January 1 and, Mm -hmm. and go to her and say, President, we have all these fantastic things here. We need you to say 
that everybody here at MIT has permission to use all these things. Mm-hmm. We need it to come from you. We can say it and mind, heart, hand can say it and emergency management can say it and all these other groups can say it, but we need you to say it so yeah. that it means something. So I think that's what we uh, I think that's what's needed is get all the advocate groups, all the partners that have that as their goal, get together, make the pitch and take that to the senior administrator or whoever it is at the top and say, look, we're here, we can help, but we need you to be our mouthpiece this one time and then we'll take it from there. Wow. Okay. Oh, so you have uh, got your work cut out for you in the next little bit of time, don't you? (laughs) Uh, Yes, I do, which is why I'm still here actively working at MIT. Uh, I still have things that I want to accomplish. Yes, absolutely. Well, and I want to take a, a quick step back to talking about IAEM, because I know that you have also been working on another initiative called the Brain Break Room. Can you talk about that and what, how did that come about and what's the value of that? So we decided two years ago when we were coming back into in-person mm-hmm. after we took a hiatus with uh, COVID to have a virtual conference that you've been to an IEM conference. Yes. You know what they're like. It's kind of <laughs> yes. It's kind of like driving on the LA freeway, eight lanes of traffic and everybody's going like crazy. And (laughs) it can be, even for a seasoned conference goer, it can be a little bit intimidating. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just felt it was very important to have a place, a room that we ended up calling the brain break room, where people could just go and get away from the madness get away from the hustle and bustle and just calm down, Mm -hmm. reset their heartbeat, uh, reset their anxiety, and just calm down, do some mindful meditation, do some deep breathing, do some Sudoku if they wanted to, draw in Mm -hmm. some adult coloring books, play a couple of games of solitaire with some decks of cards, whatever, and just relax. And so uh, we got some yoga mats Mm -hmm. and uh, we did buy some adult coloring books and we bought some Sudoku books. We bought some decks of cards and we got some uh, smooth polished stones that we put out that people could take with them to have something tangible to kind of use as a textual thing. We had some some other visual things. Uh, we bought a Tibetan chime thing that people can use to like. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah uh, either bowl? Uh, do circles around a bowl to either do that or, or click to make noises. Uh, we bought one of those and uh, we just did uh, mood lighting. We had water in there in case people wanted some water. And then we had limited things in Grand Rapids and then we added in Savannah, we added in the morning and the evening, uh, we had some folks from Mindful Noah come in and do guided mindfulness sessions in oh, the wow. morning and afternoon. And then we had a couple of other people that were there in the room, but kind of hovering outside the room in case somebody needed someone that they wanted to talk to because they were 
spiraling or just felt like they needed somebody that they could just unwind with. Right. And we bought and found a bunch of uh, stress balls. Oh, yeah. Out in the vendor fair, those bunch of people had like stress things. So we scarfed up a bunch of those and then we bought some of our own and we just left some of those there. We left a whole table of like, these are things that you can take. And then we left another table of these are things that you can use, but leave behind. Right. And it became, uh, it was minimally used in Grand Rapids because people weren't really sure what it was. Mm -hmm. But by the time uh, Savannah rolled around, it became a very integral part of the of the conference and people were using it all day long. The mindfulness sessions in the morning or afternoon were super well attended. And we got tons of feedback, not only from conference attendees, but from the IEM staff who were getting overworked and frazzled and they would come and they would get recentered and grounded and go back to work. So it became just this enormous resource for people. And th- that's what we wanted. We That was our vision. And it, it came to life in Savannah and we couldn't be happier about it. Wow. What a fabulous resource for people. And I'm so pleased that it was so well received, but it's a, it's a real life illustration of how important it is to be taking care of ourselves and our mental health and and slowing down. And I feel like every conference should have one of these, um, not just emergency managers, because I could have benefited from these in almost every conference I've ever been to. David, that's so wonderful. I'm so pleased to hear how well received they were. Well, just an addendum to the whole brain break story. When I came back here, I started thinking about how like a conference life at MIT is. Mm-hmm. And I've been working with my fellow mental health people here. And we are working on instituting brain break-like rooms across our campus because MIT is a very high-pressure, very high-paced life community. And and people sometimes, unfortunately, don't feel like they have a place and they Mm -hmm. spiral out of control to a very bad place. Uh, And so we're we're doing a lot of work in our, our student center and in the student center, there's going to be a brick. It won't be called a brain break room, but it's going to have all the attributes of our brain break room. Right. <laughs> and, and there are other plans around campus to institute similar type rooms to let people know that uh, they are, that this has value. And even departments are catching on to this. And we're finding departments that are wanting to do this. So an ideal for a conference is catching on at an at an institution level as well. And so, uh, you know, I couldn't be happier that a concept for a conference is catching on and an idea is growing. That's amazing. I couldn't be happier for you. I'm so pleased. And so many people will benefit from these new brain break rooms, whatever they're called. I can only imagine the kind of high pressure environment it is at MIT. And I think supporting people's resiliency as much as possible is a really important step. What great work you're doing, David. Well, you know, there's a lot of people. It's teamwork. Uh, yes. it, it's such a great effort. And if I can be a cheerleader, if I can be an extra drop of water to make a stream 
that's my that's my role in life. Uh, yes. is just to help help me part of the process. I yes. can I can germinate something and it can grow from some little tiny activity that I had part in. Uh, I am so grateful that I can be part of that process. That's so wonderful. So, David, I mean, given your professional role and all that you think about, you know, in, in your life, what is an important lesson about resiliency or maybe about compassion that you have learned? I have learned that uh, resiliency and compassion are probably the most integral part of who we are as human beings. Mm. Because without resiliency and without compassion, we miss the opportunity to be all that we really are. And that impacts everybody that we come in contact with. And with resiliency and compassion, we can have an impact with everybody that we come in contact with and affect them in positive ways as opposed to in negative ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. Now, you and your team and the folks you work with have had some really good success making um, making some changes with the conference and, and you're seeing the changes at the university. What do you think is the most important action or policy that an organization can take to be supportive of trauma survivors or individuals who, um, you know, individuals' resiliency? Policy change. I think from a policy level change, it would be to provide all the support that's needed at any level when somebody reaches out and says, I need help. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think there should be limits on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I know, you know, the bean counters would say, well, there's no way we can do that. But if we truly value our employees and our community, then we should be willing Every organization, whether it's, I won't name other organizations, things, (laughs) because I don't think we should do that here, but I'll say MIT because I'm part of MIT. MIT expects a a very high standard of its students, of its teachers, of its employees, of its community. If we expect that ultra high standard, then we as an organization, MIT, should be just as willing to give that ultra high standard back when help is needed. Yeah. I like that thought of we expect a lot. We should also be ready to give a lot to support that. Sure. Like somebody had a, had a concept that faculty get sabbaticals here at MIT mm-hmm. and they're here for, you know, however many years I've been here for 40 years. Why don't I get a sabbatical? Yeah. It might I help. Agree. My mental That's health. a long time. <laughs> might help my mental health. Right. <laughs> sure. Interesting. Well, I know the world of academics, uh, academic institutions seem to behave a little bit differently than some other organizations. So <laughs> that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> so, David, we're getting close to when we should be wrapping up. It, but is there any question that you wish I had asked you? Uh no, I think you've done a pretty good job of looking inside my brain and asking <laughs> questions that uh, that I thought that you would ask. I, I think you've done a good job okay. of, uh, of marching right down the road and asking the right questions. <laughs> well, I've got one more question before we officially wrap up, and that is, 
What would you tell your 18-year-old self about resiliency? Well, I remember what my 18-year-old self was like. (laughs) That person was nothing like the person that's sitting in front of you today. So I would tell that person that um, you will have a journey in your life that will be full of ups and downs, but don't discount any of them because through resiliency, they will all add to your life and make you into the person that you will become in the future. Mm-hmm. Do you think your 18-year-old self would have listened? Probably not. There was some, I, who's, who's this I, white-haired goatee geezer trying to tell me something? I'm going to go drink a beer. Yes. I, I think very few of our 18-year-old selves would have listened to these kinds of messages. But I like the thought that maybe some, maybe some folks will listen to what we're saying today anyway. Maybe. Maybe, maybe. Maybe, maybe. So, David, if our listeners want to learn more about emergency management or IAEM or maybe MIT, how do they get in touch with you? They can get in touch with me through my email. It's a simple email, dbarber, D-B-A-R-B-E-R at MIT.edu. Or they can always text me on my phone. It's always on. It's always available. 617-719-1205. I'm always on to answering questions and love to hear from people. Well, thank you so much for our conversation today. I learned a lot about you and about resiliency through your eyes. So thank you for that. And um, thank you to our listeners for being here today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I hope you got as much out of this conversation as I did. So if you'd like to learn more about me, Manya Chilinski. I work with organizations to help understand how to create environments where people can thrive after difficult life experiences. And I do this through talks and consulting. I'm a survivor of mass violence, and I use my experience to help leaders learn about resiliency, compassion, and trauma-sensitive leadership to build strategies to enable teams to thrive and be engaged amidst difficulty and turmoil. If this is something you want to learn more about, Visit my website, www.maniachilinski.com. Email me at mania at maniachilinski. Or stop by my social media on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. I hope you got as much out of this conversation as I did. So if you'd like to learn more about me, Manya Chilinski, I work with organizations to help understand how to create environments where people can thrive after difficult life experiences. And I do this through talks and consulting. I'm a survivor of mass violence, and I use my experience to help leaders learn about resiliency, compassion, and trauma-sensitive leadership to build strategies to enable teams to thrive and be engaged amidst difficulty and turmoil. If this is something you want to learn more about, visit my website, www.maniachilinski.com or email me at mania at mania Chilinski, or stop by my social media on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks so much. Talk soon.